just when things were beginning to be somewhat normal and we thought that COVID is about to end and masks are coming off and we're trying to settle into a new phase of our lives. Subhanallah, a political incident captures the imagination of the world and one of the great superpowers of our times, Russia, invades Ukraine. And for the last week, this news has been riveting us throughout the entire days and nights. We've heard nothing except about this reality. So in today's khutbah, I want to share some Islamic reflections and some theological benefits from this reality. And my khutbah will center around five points. The first issue, why talk about politics during a khutbah? I want to emphasize this khutbah is not a secular political analysis. Neither is this the place, nor am I qualified to do that. I am not discussing the whys, analyzing the hows, pontificating about the what-ifs. Rather, this is an attempt to benefit from an Islamic paradigm and extract lessons and morals based upon our Quran and our Sunnah. That is because the mind of a Muslim should always analyze every single fact through the lens of Iman. And the Quran commands us to ponder over the creation and to ponder over the past history and to analyze current events, all of it through the lens of Iman and Taqwa. Allah says in the Quran that the pious are those who They think about the creation and they ponder over the miracles of creation. That's pondering over science. Allah tells us in the Quran Don't they wander in the lands and travel and see the fates of the civilizations before them? This is past history. Allah says in the Quran, Don't they see we have made Mecca a peaceful sanctuary? Don't they see that they have been provided from food and protected against civil war? This is an analysis of current politics. Throughout the Quran, Allah wants us to analyze the creation and the past and the present through the eyes of the Muslim and the Mu'min. And that is what today's attempt is. So please understand this point. It is not political analysis. It is theological benefits as every one of us should be doing. The second point, why should we even care about what is happening in two faraway lands? Should we even care that one nation has invaded another? And I was in fact surprised to hear some people remark with complete callousness that this war is of no concern to us. One of them said, two Kafir countries fighting, who cares? This really surprised me because it betrays an ignorance of both history and of basic Islamic theology. As for ignorance of history, just go back 100 years. World War I was the result of conflicts in that very region, Serbia and Germany and Russia and other lands, 100 years ago. And World War I, when it began, it had nothing to do with the Middle East, and it had nothing to do with the Arabs, and it had nothing to do with the Muslim civilization. But by the time World War I ended, all lands of the world, including our Muslim lands, had been dragged in. 
and directly as a result of World War I, the caliphate collapsed. And the Sykes-Picot agreement that divided the Muslim Ummah into many dozens of nation states was enacted. And Palestine was handed over to the British. And the rest, as they say, is history. Imagine if somebody said 100 years ago, who cares what's happening in France and Serbia and Belgium and Russia? Who cares? Do you not learn from history? When superpowers get involved, the world gets involved. But also, not just from history, what type of heart is it that doesn't care about the plight of other human beings? What type of Iman are we teaching when one of our own and one of our own members says this, that who cares two Kafir countries fighting has nothing to do with us? Where is the basic humanity and compassion? Subhanallah, do we not learn from the seerah? Do we not learn from the sunnah? That a lady entered the fire of hell because she showed callousness to a cat. And another prostitute lady entered Jannah because she showed compassion to a dog. If Allah will punish people for being hard-hearted towards animals, and Allah will reward people for being compassionate towards animals, including dogs, then what do you think about compassion and mercy towards your fellow human beings? And what do you think about callousness towards fellow human beings? What type of Iman does such a person have that this person believes that only a Muslim we care about and anybody else we don't care about? Yes, it is true. And I'll be the first to say that we have stronger ties with our blood and our fellow Muslim uh, people. No doubt about that. That when we like somebody, when we're familiar with somebody, when we're related with somebody, yes, the love of connection will be stronger but this does not mean that just because a person is not of our faith or not of our background that we have no compassion not at all the indiscriminate killings of civilians and the creation of massive refugees and the suffering and pain that any war inflicts it should bring about in us a genuine sense of compassion a genuine sense of caring for humanity and I say this as bluntly as possible that any Muslim who doesn't care about the mass suffering of any large group of innocent people something is wrong with that person's iman this is not the iman that Allah and his messenger have taught us and we should be having we care about everybody the orphan the yatim the faqir the miskin we care about the refugee and the women and the widows we care about all of them regardless of faith and yes we say this very clearly my blood brother no doubt I'll care more about him my Muslim brother no doubt the level is there yes more but just because he's not my blood brother or just because it's a stranger of another faith doesn't mean I have no compassion and anybody who believes this has really not understood the realities of our own religion so this is the second point Yes, we care. We care both historically and we care as the compassion of a fellow human and a fellow Muslims will have. And by the way, it's not as if there are no Muslims in that region. Go study your history. Large pockets of Muslims have been there for many hundreds of years, for many centuries. Look at all of the, uh, the Tatars, the, the, the Tatar civilization, which is a Muslim-based civilization, and other pockets over there as well. So yes, we care. We care for many reasons. The third benefit that we will gain from this, this incident that we are seeing is that it reminds us of the reality of the nature of man. It reminds us of the reality of the nature of man. We as Muslims should appreciate what the angel said when Allah announced that we're creating a new creation. The angels understood the reality of this creation. 
And the angel said, Oh Allah, this is a new creation that will cause nothing but fitna and fasad, war and chaos, bloodshed and suffering. The angels understood that this is a different type of species, a species that will fight each other, cause destruction amongst each other, create havoc and evil amongst each other. And this reality will never change throughout all of human history, despite all of our advancements, despite all of the treaties, despite the powers of the UN, despite all of this notion that we have left those medieval wars, you cannot change the reality of mankind. And this pseudo-presumption that we are now an enlightened race, that mankind has advanced to a higher plateau, this is simply false. You cannot change the nature of mankind. And it is a sad reality that animals do not break up into imaginary divisions based upon nation state. And animals do not go to war with one another based upon the, uh, the, uh, being greedy and wanting more land and wanting more power. No two groups of animals split up and fight amongst each other. This is unique to human species. And that's what the angel said. Why would you do this, O Allah? And Allah said, there are wisdoms you will not understand. So there is a lesson for us in all of this that we should not be deceived by this illusion that modern man is somehow different and superior and intellectually better and greater in values than all of the rest of mankind. On the contrary, mankind remains mankind and Allah Azza wa Jal has reminded us of this reality in the Quran. The fourth benefit and wisdom that we should gain from all of this is once again the reality of war. And this is a very deep topic. Why do these civilizations go to war? If people are constantly going for war, as they have done throughout all of human history, then we as well as a Muslim civilization can point to our past. Our youngsters, our next generation, sometimes they become embarrassed at our sharia. They don't understand our history. And they say, why did the khulafa, why did the umayyads go to these lands? Why did they go to India? Why did they go to Egypt? And they try to explain or they're embarrassed about it. There is nothing to be embarrassed about in our faith and our religion. And the more you study the reality of human history and the reality of human psychology and the reality of the global situation, the more you will understand the wisdom of our sharia. And we're talking about here the past because once upon a time, yes, our civilizations did engage in offensive warfare. These days, of course, and even for the bulk of Islamic history, there was no offensive warfare. But for pockets of time, during the Khulafa al-Rashidun, during the early Umayyad, it is true that the early Umayyads and our Khulafa al-Rashidun, they did engage in offensive war. But why? Why did they go for war? Look at the reality of Islam. They went in order to spread a theology and a belief that people can hear the kalima of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. They went in order to save people from tyranny and injustice. Allah says in the Quran, Those that have been wronged, they have the right to fight back. Allah says in the Quran, Were it not for the fact that groups of people repel the evil of others, evil would 
spread in all of mankind. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا لَكُمْ لَا تُقَاتِلُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالْمُصْطَعَفِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ Why aren't you fighting in the way of Allah when innocent civilians, innocent men and women and children are being killed and they're saying, who is going to help us, O oh Allah? Notice all of these verses. What is the common theme? The common theme is that when our states declared war back in the past, they did so for noble reasons. And there are two primary reasons. Number one, to spread the message and not the religion. Nobody forced, but the message needs to be spread. And number two, to help innocent people. And subhanAllah, these days, Western lands, they go to war to spread their aqidah and their message. And their message is the message of capitalism. Their message is the message of their version of democracy, their version of government. They think it is justified to bomb entire lands so that they can get rid of a king and replace it with their version of democracy. That is why they go to war. As for the Eastern Bloc, they go to war to prevent capitalism, to spread communism. They go to war because they don't want NATO alliances or whatever it might be. That's their wisdoms. And as for us, we in our Sharia were never allowed to go to war for the sake of greed, for the sake of money, for the sake of capitalism and imperialism. No. We went to war to spread the kalima or to defend innocent people. And the fact of the matter, and I say this loudly and proudly, as a person whose origin is in the land of India, I say proudly, I thank Allah for Muhammad ibn Qasim to come to my land so that my ancestors could stop the worship of pagan gods. And I can say loudly and proudly, Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. If they can go to war for false reasons of dunya, we have nothing to be ashamed about of our own sharia and our own tradition when our ancestors and the khulafa went to war for far more noble causes and this is something as i said of the past because in order to go for offensive war many conditions are needed and these days those conditions do not exist so this is point number four point number five my final point and the longest one much has been made amongst our own circles of the double standards of reporting this incident and of the blatant racism that permeates throughout all of Western journalism and throughout all of this political analysis that we are hearing. And we in this audience, we are all familiar with this. It should not come as a surprise to any of us. Of course, they do not view their own as they view us. And of course, they give excuses for their own race that they will not give excuses to other races. This is something we all know. So what I want for us to do as I go over the next few points in point number five is so that we are incentivized to educate ourselves and then to engage with our colleagues, with our neighbors, with those whom we interact with, with wisdom if we feel qualified to do so. To engage so that we can influence the mindset of those who don't see the hypocrisy, those who don't see the double standards. Oh Muslims, we have to be the voice of conscience in this land. We, the Muslim community, has to stand up for truth and justice. And we need to learn how to point out these double standards and this hypocrisy in a manner that is wise. So please educate yourself first and then learn what is the best way to approach if you feel qualified to do so. 
Now, having said this, I want to point out, it is only natural to care more about your own kind than others. This much is natural. It is only natural when you see somebody like you, your civilization, your ethnicity, there's a bit of a stronger relationship. That's not a problem in and of itself. After all, we as Muslims have the same thing, and I just said it a few minutes ago. We have more of a stronger affinity to our own faith tradition. That's not the issue. But the issue is, that when you judge the actions of the other based upon their skin color and you will excuse one skin color but not another or you will excuse one civilization but not the other when it does the exact same thing that is what we are calling out to be very clear none of us should be surprised that birds of a feather flock together none of us should be surprised that one civilization feels more of an affinity with its own we do the same that's not the issue that we're criticizing what we are criticizing is that there seems to be two different set of scales two different judgments when the same action is done by two different people the one of them becomes positive and the other becomes negative that is what we're pointing out and that is where our criticism arises the claim that the Middle East and Africa are lands where somehow violence is endemic. It is as if it is in the DNA of people with a darker skin color. Hence the notion that those who are not like us and white and those who are coming from non-Christian backgrounds, they are inherently prone to violence. This claim, which at times is explicit, if you listen to the Atlas, they actually will sometimes say this without even realizing the blatant racism that they're saying, is very, very convenient. Because what they do is they suffer from mass historical amnesia. They forget about their own history and their own internal strife and their own wars. They forget about their entire Middle Ages and they also forget about their own history of involving themselves in Arab and Middle Eastern and African lands. The history of colonization is something that is completely absent from the curriculum of most of the Western world. The Middle East and Africa would not be in the way that it is and the mess that it is had it not been for 300 years of colonization. And we as Muslims need to educate ourselves and then preach and teach to the people around us. One simple example and so much can be said. 400 years ago, when India was first discovered by Europeans, when the British first landed in this land of India, more than 400 years ago, India was at that time, the collective lands of India, it was the largest economic superpower in the world, bar none. There was no close second. One third of global GDP was based out of India. Think about that. One land, one people, one third of global economy is based out of India. And when Europe and when England came to India, they were not even in the top 50 nations. Think about that. Fast forward 300 years. And at the turn of the last century, India is now impoverished and England has now become globally dominant by taxing and pillaging and plundering and literally stealing from the entire lands of India. And our country of America, by the way, has a lot to do with the history of India and the colonization of India. The East India Trading Company, our founding fathers, most of them got rich through it and then came to this land. All of you in high school have studied the Boston Tea Party and the, uh, the overthrowing of the, of the tea in the Boston Harbor. Do you know that the tea that was gotten rid of was tea that had on it 
the East India Tea Company, straight out of India. It was our wealth that financed this land and the discovery of this land and the eventual dominance of this land. Wealth straight out of India and Muslim lands. So now for them to ignore their own role in carving out the Middle East, in literally dictating which group and country will be where it is. And forget 400 years ago, even in the last few centuries and decades, even in my own lifetime, how can the West ignore its role in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in Syria in creating the crises of those lands? In my own lifetime when I was a child, Iraq was, and we're not talking about the dictator, we're talking about the people. The people of Iraq were one of the most well-off GDP-wise. Their education and their health care rivaled some countries in Europe. This is in my own lifetime when I was a child. Do you think this chaos came out of nowhere? How arrogant for the West to ignore their own role. 35 years of brutal sanctions, 35 years of bombing, 35 years of false invasions, and not even an apology. And then you have the audacity to say those people are violent, those people don't deserve any sympathy, while you ignore your own role in creating that violence and creating that civil war? Afghanistan, and who wants to begin about Afghanistan? Even since before I was born, the invasions after invasions, the complete decimation of the people, you never gave them a chance to find peace such that now you're saying, oh, it's endemic amongst them. How convenient, and it's our job, oh Muslims, it's our job to educate ourselves and then to educate others. That's what our role is. We have to be beacons and role models of knowledge and of education so that the tide begins to change. And subhanAllah, after 50 years of brutally invading Afghanistan and completely decimating its population, who are already very impoverished and very poor, last week or two weeks ago, our government unilaterally announced announces that they're going to confiscate seven billion dollars of Afghani wealth found in banks from the people of Afghanistan just because they have the power to do so. Then you have the arrogance and you have the gall to proclaim us as being the backward. You never gave them a chance. You were the ones who invaded and bombed and then when the creation, when the, when the civil war happens and when refugees are created, you have the audacity to blame the religion. We have to point out these double standards and we need to educate ourselves and then them of this reality. And it's not just that. It's not just that. Let's be brutally honest here. Look at how those Ukrainians who are standing up and fighting Russian oppression are being portrayed. Look at how those people are being portrayed as freedom fighters. Look at the valorization of the underground resistant movement. SubhanAllah, CNN on its front page had an in-depth story of the life and bravery of a Ukrainian soldier who blew himself up to prevent Russians from crossing a particular bridge. He is viewed as a martyr for a noble cause. In any other circumstance, this would have been a suicide bomber who is a religious fanatic. But all of a sudden, the same incident and the same reality is portrayed in a different manner. BBC on its front page, and I could not believe this, I saw this with my own eyes, was reporting with glee, with happiness, that British citizens are coming to the Ukrainian embassy wanting to fight and wanting to volunteer. And the interviewer says, are you Ukrainian? No, I'm not Ukrainian. Why are you going? I want to fight for justice. Subhanallah. So when it is Russia that is invading, you want your own citizens to go and defend. But when it is a Western power, then when your citizens do this, then you go and you jail 
kill them and you call them terrorists. We have to be fair here. We have to be consistent in what we say is freedom and what we say is justice. Just because the invaders happen to be us, all of a sudden everything changes? No, we have to, with wisdom. Because again, this is a very sensitive topic. And I have to put this disclaimer throughout those years of whatever was happening in the Middle East. I was never an advocate of those religious movements. But at the same time, I never said that those types of people in those lands are doing anything wrong. I never said this. And today I'm saying the same thing. When a foreign country comes and invades you, what do you expect the locals to do? What do you expect? So if you can understand Ukrainians are standing up against Russia, then why can we not understand when a Western power invades, those locals will also stand up? Why is there two different methods of judging? This is the double standards and hypocrisy that we need to point out, brothers and sisters. One wonders, really, when people make such statements and write such stories, are they not even aware of the blatant double standards, of the sheer hypocrisy of these claims? And that's why we Muslims have to be the voice of conscience. We have to be the educational barometer of society around us. Our media, our politicians, they ignore our own country's role in the creation of problems in our own lands. They concentrate only on the effects of the problems they created. And instead of taking ownership and responsibility, even if partially, they simplistically and with racism blame the religion and the skin color. Oh, it's their faith that does this. Oh, those are not, those are Africans or Middle Eastern or Arabs people. And they dehumanize the plight of everybody who is suffering under their role while they valorize the plight of those who are suffering under Russia. The Ukrainians are fighting against those who invade them. They are freedom fighters. When the Palestinians stand up and fight against oppression for 70 years, they become the aggressors. They become the violent people. What is going on? This is the perfect time, brothers and sisters, the perfect time for every one of you to become a small ambassador amongst your circle of family and friends, amongst your colleagues. With wisdom, I keep on saying, because it's a very sensitive topic. We are not justifying terrorism. But who gets to define terrorism? And why is one act considered terrorism, not the other? These are the questions we're asking. These are the questions we want the broader society to begin think about. Just because Russia, that is a rival of America, invades all of a sudden, anybody who opposes them, we paint them in a certain way. When we do the same actions, anybody who opposes our land, we treat in a different manner. And I keep on telling us, if we're not gonna point out the double standards now, when are we going to do this? That is why my motivation to give this khutbah. This is the perfect opportunity for us to be, as I said, ambassadors of wisdom. Actual, what Allah says in the Quran, Speak with justice and truth, even if it is against yourselves. We are living in these lands. And we understand these lands have a lot of good, but these lands have also done some evil overseas. And it is our job, we appreciate the good, but we point that evil out. And that is my fifth and final point. Brothers and sisters, much more can be said. And there are many benefits and wisdoms to extract, but time is always limited. And inshallah ta'ala, in these five points, there is enough for us to begin our contemplation for further wisdoms. And success comes from Allah Azza wa Jal alone. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless me and you with and through the Quran. And may he make us of those who his verses they understand and applies halal and haram throughout our lifespan. I ask Allah's forgiveness to you as well ask him for his the ghafoor and the rahman.
الحمد لله الواحد الأحد الصمد الذي لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا أحد وبعده Muslims, we always have to be vigilant against becoming too involved in something at the expense of another thing. We have to balance ourselves. And yes, we educate ourselves about the politics. We educate ourselves about the reality. But let us never forget our spirituality. Ramadan is around the corner. We have to be careful that the events of Ukraine and Russia do not prevent us from coming closer to Allah in these next weeks and especially in the month of Ramadan. We ask Allah to allow us to be in Ramadan and to worship Ramadan. How many amongst us even know if we have that blessing, subhanAllah. And in this month of Sha'ban, because Sha'ban has begun, Ramadan is one month away. In this month of Sha'ban, it is not a month of trivial nature. It is an important month. It is a month where we prepare for the coming of Ramadan. It is a month where we spiritually and mentally prepare we do what we can for that great month ahead of us Usama ibn Zayd the one whom the Prophet loved the one who is considered to be almost like a son to the Prophet Usama ibn Zayd said O Messenger of Allah I have never seen you fast as much in any month except for Ramadan as I've seen you fast in Sha'ban I have never seen you fast more in any month except Ramadan than Sha'ban. And our Prophet Sallallahu said, This is a month Most people are oblivious to it. They ignore it. Most people ignore it. It is between Rajab and Ramadan, meaning Sha'ban. And it is a month that Allah raises good deeds to Himself. So I wish that Allah raises my deeds when I am fasting during this month. The purpose of this hadith, which is an Nasa'i, is that we remind ourselves that Sha'ban is the preparation ground for Ramadan. Let us start preparing ourselves spiritually. Let us start preparing ourselves physically, emotionally, mentally. Let us start getting rid of the dunya stuff we need to do. We all have chores that we need to do. Get them done now so that Ramadan has some extra time. Maybe some of us have fast that we have to do from last year. Make them up now. Maybe we haven't paid zakat of last year. Make it up now. Make sure you are spiritually and mentally prepared. Do as many fasts as you can. Start calculating your zakat from now. If you have any shopping to do for Eid, do it now. Why spend the last 10 nights doing that? Do it now and keep it until that day comes. Prepare yourself for that month that is coming because Allah knows if any of us are actually going to be there during that month. But if and when it comes, we should be the best and the most prepared. So take advantage of this month and use Sha'ban to lay the foundations for the coming month of Ramadan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless me and you and all of us. Allahumma inni da'in fa'aminu. اللهم لا تدع في هذا اليوم ذما إلا غفرته ولا هما إلا فرجته ولا دينا إلا قضيته ولا مريضا إلا شفيته ولا عسيرا إلا يسرته اللهم اغفر لنا ولإخواننا الذين سبقونا بالإيمان ولا تجعل في قلوبنا غلا للذين آمنوا ربنا إنك رؤوف الرحيم اللهم أعز الإسلام والمسلمين اللهم أعز الإسلام والمسلمين اللهم أعز الإسلام والمسلمين اللهم من أرادنا أو أراد الإسلام والمسلمين بسوء فجعله من نفسه وجعل تدميره في تدبيره يا قوي يا عزيز عباد الله إن الله تعالى يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعذكم لعلكم تذكرون اذكروا الله الله العظيم يذكركم واشكروه يزد لكم ولذكر الله تعالى أكبر وأقم الصلاة